Chapter Two of Lancashire by Francis Archibald Bruton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Some beauty spots of the industrial districts. If the boundaries of Lancashire, as we have just seen, are striking, its surface, as we shall see later, is no less remarkable. It's true that certain geological formations are not represented, but the strata that occur are just those that supply the most varied scenery and the most striking contrasts. Of no county is it more true, again, that its commercial prosperity has grown out of its mineral resources. Those who would appreciate the beauties of Lancashire, in their completeness, however, must contemplate them in conjunction with the history and development of the county and its people. Ruskin tells us that he once came upon a lovely view in the Jura. He afterwards pointed out the exact spot to a friend, and tried to imagine that it might be entirely without history or romantic associations. At once, he says, the magic light died away. A sudden blankness and chill were cast over it, and the hills became oppressively desolate. He makes use of this incident to show how much of the glory of the imperishable or continually renewed creation is reflected from things more precious in their memories than it is in its renewal. As we pass from one part of Lancashire to the other, amid the changing seasons, always bearing in mind the historical associations of the district immediately before us, it seems that of no part of the country could Ruskin's words be more true. These ever-springing flowers and ever-flowing streams have been dyed by the deep colours of human endurance, valour and virtue. Lancashire, it is true, includes within its boundaries part of the English Lake District, if its coast is not striking, yet it can boast rivers whose pastoral beauty drew from Ruskin his very highest praise. Its rivers, its sands and its lakes again furnished Turner with subjects for some of his most famous paintings. It can claim among its uplands part of what Arnold called the least known hill district in all England, viz. the wild and beautiful forest of Bowland. It was on the high moors east of Burnley that Philip Gilbert Hamerton first pitched his painter's camp. Here am I, he wrote from his hut in the fifties, painting from nature on a Lancashire moor, twelve hundred feet high in a storm of wind and rain. And these hills spoke to him at that time more than any others, Lancashire born as he was, of calm beauty and sublime expression of gigantic power in repose. But we shall miss out much of what is best in Lancashire, if we confine ourselves to its northern solitudes, or its most beautiful streams. Some of its finest scenery lies among the bold wild masses of grit that flank the great coal-field that almost covers the southern part of the county, masses which indeed in places protrude through the coal-field itself, and if at times a distant view of factory chimneys appears to mar a scene that might otherwise be one of nature's best, those who see the present in the light of the past will find compensation in the thought that districts which eight and a half centuries ago were so desolate that the doomsday surveyors exonerated them as free from all custom have gradually arrived at their present status through the painful efforts of a strenuous thrifty race who won their small estates step by step from the waste and at the same time found leisure for occupations that laid the foundation not only of the industrial supremacy of the county, but of the commercial greatness of the realm. It was a traveller of the 18th century who, halting on the border of Lancashire, turned to his companion with the remark, We are now about to enter the county of industry and spirit. It's a curious fact, not always recognised, 
at any rate by strangers, that, almost as if to compensate the workers for the blight that their occupations cast over their immediate surroundings, nearly all the industrial centres of Lancashire have, close at hand, some districts of beautiful country that acts as a lung to the population. Liverpool, though the district immediately around it is somewhat featureless, has its broad breezy estuary on which float ever-changing Argus's teeming with perennial interest. The long sands to the north, the green shore and rural county that fringe the estuary by Hayland Speak, and the attractions of the opposite coast. Warrington, whose vegetation is blighted by chemical fumes, finds compensation in the same districts, as well as in the beautiful forest across the river. From Manchester the workers stream out into the sweet plain of Cheshire, or travel further afield to the hills that offer such alluring prospects on clear days, visible as they are sometimes even from the city trams, and forming a panorama on the horizon that reaches from Rivington in the north-west right round to the foothills of the peak in the south-east. Wigan, in addition to all the beauties that lie close at hand round Hay Hall, can boast the valley of the Douglas, a stream that has before now been seriously associated with the battles of the legendary King Arthur. Ashurst Beacon, and the other hills that flank the little river, as well as the deep wooded dells that lead down to it. Dean Wood, for example, which has been described as one of the loveliest dales in South Lancashire, and certainly it can be lovely in early spring. Widnes and Runcorn are close to the Hale country with its rural charms. Ashton and Staley Bridge run right up to the foothills of the Pennines, within easy reach of the Swineshaw Moors, the beautiful Ogden Brook, and all the glories of Longdendale. Chadderton, Royton and Middleton have the Tandle Hills, once the drilling ground of the Peterloo reformers, recently thrown open to the public for ever. The workers of Oldham are fully conscious of the advantages of the proximity of the uplands of Delph and Friarmere, of Stanedge and Greenfield. Littleborough is at the foot of Blackstone Edge and close to Hollingworth Lake. Bolton lies immediately to the south of Belmont Lake, the high moors of Smith Hills, Rivington and Winter Hill, and the district which was once the hunting ground of the Lords of Manchester, a district recently secured to it for ever by the generous gift of the Lever Park, with its many interests. Todmorden, lately absorbed into Yorkshire, though still retaining some affinities with Lancashire, lies at a charming meet of the valleys, one of which, followed northwards as far as Home Chapel, is almost alpine in its bold beauty, for surely the Vale of Cliviger, seen in its spring garment, when the fresh green of the buds that have burst is thrown up by the rich purple of those that are bursting, is one of the glories of Lancashire. Bakeup and Rottenstall flank the highlands of the forest of Rossendale and Deerplay Moor, where the Irwell takes its rise. Blackburn, which is only separated from the beautiful Ribble Valley by a low range of hills, has the heights of Darwin to the south, while on the west it shares with Preston the country round Horton Towers. Preston itself occupies its own commanding position at the head of the Ribble estuary, with the green country of Horton Bottoms and Samsbury Bottoms to the east and the picturesque villages of the file to the north. Lancaster stands on a still more commanding site at the mouth of the Loon, only a few miles below the famous Crook. Ramsbottom, Helmshaw and Haslingdon lie at the foot of the noble moors that rise steeply on both sides of them. The same is true of Turton, Edgeworth and Darwin. Berry has the winding, well-watered gorge of deeply vale close at hand, 
and above it the steep slopes of Knoll Hill and the surrounding heights, while Burnley, Nelson and Colne cluster round the huge mass of Pendle, of which it has been well said by Mr. F. H. Cheetham in his admirable little guide, that more perhaps than any other physical feature of the county, Pendle Hill typifies Lancashire to Lancashire men. We have spoken of the hardy race whose grit and ingenuity first combined industrial occupations with agriculture, and then, as the former developed and received the enormous impetus due to the revolution, changed an area that they had themselves made largely agricultural into one that was mainly industrial. There is another cause for this development, which has had an important bearing on Lancashire history. The fact that the western half of the county is mainly flat, has always led to its being used as a regular route to the north. It was so in Roman times. In fact, at that period it was little else, and the five Roman stations that lay within its boundaries were no doubt originally intended mainly to guard lines of communication. The county is still the avenue for trunk lines of communication, and trunk lines and industries have reacted on one another with results favourable to both. Again, the very fact that the county has played the part of an avenue between north and south accounts for the use made of it by military leaders. Hence we find Lancashire utilised over and over again as a route for an invading force or a military expedition, and for that reason again the county figures in national history. Not only do the trunk lines that sweep north and south make use, as is natural, of the main river valleys whenever possible, but the railways which radiate from the industrial centres in other directions, and especially across the eastern barrier, have taken advantage one after the other of the gorges cut by the streams, piercing the hilltops by tunnels, and again utilising a river valley on the further side. Thus, to take a single example among many, the very first railway to cross the Pennines into Yorkshire was carried up the valley of the Roch as far as Littleborough, and brought up the Vale of the Calder on the further side as far as Hebden Bridge. Then the cutting of the Summit Tunnel, the most ambitious work of the kind in the world at the time, made it possible in 1841 to join the two lines, and so link Lancashire with Yorkshire. Protected though it was on the north and east, its broad estuaries and low coastline left Lancashire peculiarly vulnerable on the west, and place names alone are sufficient to show that those who roamed the sea more than a thousand years ago were not slow to take advantage of the fact. Unfortunately, the silting up of a number of entrances, and the increase in the tonnage of vessels, have worked together to reduce the value from a commercial point of view of this deeply indented coastline, which is quite possibly referred to in the familiar passage from Tacitus. The sea does not merely flow and ebb within the limits of the shore, but penetrates and winds far inland. And the great Agricola, as Tacitus tells us, would himself explore the estuaries and forests. We've already touched incidentally on some phases of the history of the district, but indeed it is no exaggeration to say that there is hardly a place in the history of the nation as a whole that does not find a counterpart in the story of Lancashire. We've seen moreover that scenery and story are indissolubly interwoven with one another, the one is incomplete without the other. It will be clear, then, that for a proper appreciation of our subject we need some acquaintance, first with the physical structure of the county, and then with the main outlines of its story, from the earliest times of which we have any record. To meet this need will be the aim of the chapters which immediately follow. Nor would it be right, as we proceed, 
to ignore entirely the rich store of tradition and legend that has of necessity accumulated in a district that is itself to a certain extent isolated parts of which are peculiarly wild and lonely and which can boast in addition such a varied history End of chapter 2